Friends, this is Reverend Christopher, and you're listening to Peace in Every Language. Peace in Every Language is a travel podcast that celebrates the wonder and joy of travel, as well as reporting on the constant comedic follies that inevitably meet us in life away from the places that we call home. We will see how the notion of peace, that Old Testament ideology of wholeness and fulfillment, are present throughout the world and how we experience it and bring it home again. This segment of Peace in Every Language will follow us through several episodes as we travel through India and Nepal, and we are so glad to have you here with us today. So there's actually a lot to talk about in this episode, um, and I'll try to move a little quickly just because of the kind of schedule that I'm trying to keep, um, and I don't want anything to be too long or too uninteresting. <laughs> um, one, of the, one of the main things that we're going to look at in this episode is, again, there is a sense of um, duality and of kind of a, a, a bifurcated spirit uh, about the country um, that, that we've, we've talked about before in a previous episode. And I'm seeing it play out, and I, the thing I want to talk about and kind of consider is how that changes and alters our understanding of peace, or how that allows us or doesn't allow us to communicate peace to one another. Um, or does it? So part of this is that um, we went out to uh, do some yoga. We were in uh, Hyderabad, which is one of the uh, more southern cities. And um, there's a great big park there. And we heard, just kind of through the grapevine, that yoga was being done in the park. And so me and uh, another person here on the trip decided, we're like, we're going we're gonna to do it. We've got to do it. So uh, the first day we, we walked, um, <laughs> and uh, just, of course, anywhere, whenever you travel, never trust anyone's uh, perception of time or distance. <laughs> um, and we do the same thing when people come to visit us. Uh, we always, we always uh, under, underestimate the amount of time that it takes to get anywhere because we're used to going there. And, it, and to us, it seems like it takes a few minutes. And uh, when in reality, it takes, uh, took us, I think, 15 minutes of walking, <laughs> which, which was fine. It was a nice little warm-up. Um, and we got there. And uh, there were indeed people doing yoga. There were lots of people doing yoga, actually. There were um, people doing yoga in different kind of pods, just kind of scattered all over the park. Um, there were lots of people there walking and playing and doing all kinds of things. They had a bunch of those exercise machines, those outdoor exercise machines. There were a ton of people there. Um, and uh, we were just kind of fascinated for a minute at, at how how well attended the park was. And I guess that kind of kind of reconnoitered for us, like just the number of people that were, were in the city. Um, Hyderabad is, is, uh, a neat community. It was, um, at one time Buddhist and, you know, through the many different kinds of invasions and things had suffered its own kinds of persecutions and things like that. And one of the most notable things about it is that there is a giant Buddha statue sitting out in the middle of the lake. 
um, and there's a, 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 a road that goes around the lake called the Necklace Lake. And um, the, the Buddha is actually carved from a single piece of stone. It's the largest single piece of stone Buddha uh, in the world. And um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of the city's history. We went, we were, we were there, we were doing yoga. Um, and we went, um, we actually got around to doing, we could just kind of walked around the first day. We got around to doing yoga the second day. And, of course, it's very dewy in the mornings uh, during the dry season, uh, especially in the south. And so we kind of showed up with our towels from the hotel <laughs> and not much else. But almost immediately, you know, we kind of asked one of the guys that seemed like he was maybe a little bit in charge if it was okay. And he was like, of course, of course. And um, as we started and some other people came, um, people just like, they just gave us stuff. They saw we didn't have yoga mats. And they were like, well, here, we'll borrow. We have an extra one. And I have this and I have that. And then they also gave us um, little sheets of um, like, uh, not mylar, but um, like house wrap that you would use that was just, they, they all brought them and it was used underneath the yoga mats to keep the, the dew off the mats. And they had extra of those too. And they're just like, Oh, here, please, please. You know, and we're just blown away and blessed and, 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 and in awe of this very, very generous spirit of, of these folks. And we compare that then to the systematic government that India has and governments come and go. Uh, the government right now is um, a Hindu um, <clears throat> nationalist government. Um, and as we may be familiar with, uh, nationalists are usually bad news uh, just because of the kinds of things that they put forward. Uh, and it is, if you look at the, if you look at a world list of nationalist uh, organizations or nationalist governments that have existed, um, there are some good and some bad. And the most famous nationalists, of course, are Nazis. And this matches up with our own country in the way that we now could be described as having a nationalist government uh, with, um, with the presidency where it is and, and some, other, some other of those pieces. And the very same kinds of things apply of um, wanting to close borders, of wanting to uh, exercise, you know, racism with impunity and not call it racism, of wanting to um, be fearful of other countries, of wanting to just kind of sow dissension. Uh, we talked about it at length in one of our um, uh, lectures, actually, and I, I took some notes and I was just amazed at how many things... Uh, just matched up almost exactly. It, it, there, uh, you know, you could say that the American government, and the the uh, 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 Indian government, the, the the governments in power right now are both reading from the same playbook. It's the nationalist playbook. It's identity politics um, in which you create an enemy, uh, you villainize and demonize that enemy, um, you create a system of saying like our tradition is pure, other traditions are not. And then you use that to legitimize your actions where you're going to persecute and, and kill people or, or do whatever. And that's exactly, you know, what our government, I don't want to go, go on about our government, but it's interesting that, so here in India, we have these, these folks that we meet on the street just for, for no reason. We were obviously tourists. They have no reason to be this kind and open and generous with us. And yet they are. And yet the government denies the visas 
of people that want to come and teach at a Bible conference. So it's just interesting um, how that is kind of playing out. And I I wonder, this is my question, I wonder how that factors in to the people of this place and us. How we show people peace, how we show people shalom, how we show people our wholeness and uh, our desire for their wholeness, and whether or not that kind of government or that kind of system that's in place above us encourages us to go further or discourages us. I'm not quite sure, but those are the questions. I'm going to take a pause here and... What we're going to listen to next, I'll describe it before we go into it. We went into a community in Bangalore, which is uh, still yet further south, and uh, is called Vishtar. And it's kind of a big five-acre, four-and-a-half, five-acre compound, (laughs) for lack of a better word, that is intentionally trying to sow the seeds of peace. It engages with, with the it, <clears throat> it engages with the Dalit community. It engages with um, girls who um, have been abused in uh, the the, the um, temple uh, rituals, and we'll we'll go into that a little bit later. Um, but it is just it, it's trying to do ecological things. It's trying to do uh, social practice things. It's trying to open up community things for people just to come to be there. Uh, they grow their own food. They purify their own water. Um, they're also a place of um, open um, religious experience where they welcome people from all kinds of different religious uh, walks, um, which especially now in the government that they have is is less normal. Uh, than maybe we would hope it would be, but um, we're listening to them welcoming us with uh, traditional drums and song uh, as we kind of come in. Um, we are uh, kind of anointed with the, the, the third eye mark that you, that you may be familiar with from in, in India, and also a, a, a wreath, um, a, a necklace of sorts. And um, uh, the necklace isn't a wreath of flowers this time, but it is um, homespun uh, material, wool or uh, cotton rather, cotton threads uh, that is reminiscent of the work that Gandhi originally did with the spinning wheel saying, you know, we have cotton, we don't have to be beholden to the imperial powers, we can make our own clothes. That was kind of a big thing that Gandhi did because uh, the way that Britain was keeping one of the ways that, India was, uh, that Britain was keeping India poor was by um, making sure that they did all the work for all the cotton, did all the work for all the tea, and then if they wanted to buy those goods back, they had to buy them back from British companies. Uh, so there were no um, local people that, that could rise up through entrepreneurial means. Um, it was intentional and it was meant to keep uh, India as poor as possible as a means of control, and that was one of the things that... Um, Gandhi worked again, so we got one of those as as a symbol there as well. So listen, and we'll catch up in a minute.
needless to say, the welcome that we got uh, was wonderful and incredible and, and certainly along in the same lines as all of the other places that we've been to and the kinds of welcomes that we've gotten. One of the things, um, just as we talk about drumming and, and um, the Dalit drum especially, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, caste system, which I don't think we've done too much of so far. The Dalit community is um, the group that was kind of originally called the Untouchables, uh, which may be more familiar to us. Uh, uh, it's the lowest caste in that it is below the lowest caste. It's actually like kind of outside of the the system in a way that they are completely, um, you know, beyond it at the lowest level, if that makes any sense. Um, there are subcasts, and there are there are different pieces to that. And just like where the Brahmin is the the highest caste, the dominant caste. There are Shivites and Vishnivites and all. The chasm is very, very complicated. <laughs> and we're not going to describe it in totally in, in, in total here um, in a way that anyone can understand from uh, the U.S. or Western nations in 15 minutes, uh, much less um, uh, a, a few minutes as we kind of want to talk about some other things. So just needless to say, this is kind of the group we're talking about. Um, and just to give some background on, on the Dalit, this is a couple of the stories that we heard from uh, <clears throat> folks who were um, from the Dalit community. Just some stories and things that they had uh, about some of the things that they'd suffered in the recent past. This isn't uh, persecution and things that have gone on and no longer happen. Um, one of the accepted practices long ago was that you could um, take hooks and put them into the backs of the Dalits and raise them up into trees and kill them. Uh, and, and a lot of these practices are just um, just being able to murder them, basically, um, because they just didn't have any worth. They just weren't on... They, they, it doesn't seem like they were even considered people. Which, of course, and there were some African Americans in our group, had direct... <laughs> connotations uh, to stories that we have in the U.S. of how the um, African-American population was treated during the era of slavery and certainly after the era of slavery. Um, you know, as soon as they were talking about pulling people up on hooks, you know, I mean, we think of we think of lynchings, um, which have happened in our recent past. And now we have um, we have uh, gun violence, which um, is coming from our, uh, you could say, um, cast of uh, officers, or, or you know, um, you know, that's that's an issue. That's a problem. Also, people that um, come in and uh, you know shoot people in churches and in synagogues. You know, we have a lot of those same issues, and um, India certainly has them today. And they are also mostly directed uh, by a gross margin toward the Dalit community, even still. So with all that in mind, um, I took a recording in uh, one of the Dalit villages that we actually visited, which is apparently, um, by what we were told, so much, uh, so much better than anything that they have uh, traditionally been able to uh, call their own before, which still don't have running water, 
um, but they have water delivered and um, they pay for that themselves and they have a temple that they can worship at that they built themselves and they have a priestess um, who operates that family and her family uh, her immediate family take care of that which is also new for them so there are a lot of really really positive things that have happened and are still happening for a lot of the Dalit villages um, and yet if you go visit them you will you will be um, taken with the the vast difference that there is between the Dalit villages and other communities that are right right beside them um, for no other reason other than just um, you know years and years and years of oppression and uh, just continued prejudice against them so let's let's just take as we're talking about drums and things like that um, let's just take a listen to uh, this uh, that the um, priestess's husband uh, treated us uh, we went we went into their home and they blessed us just with tea and, and, and drinks and, and banana and some cookies that they that they had they just provided for us as we were welcomed into their home and, and he got out the drum uh, he was very proud to uh, play a couple of a couple of riffs for us. So we'll, we'll listen to that together. itself is interesting. It has kind of gained a, a new uh, surgence. Um, we talked a little bit about uh, the um, kind of the new life that uh, the music and the art community has had in India um, because um, for about a generation ago, the only jobs that were really pushed for uh, children were uh, doctors and lawyers and things like that, things that were quote-unquote respectable. Um, and, and now uh, a lot of new bands are coming up or, or have been coming up. Uh, it, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a new role uh, that um, a lot of folks in India are taking, arts and, and music and things like that. So that's kind of interesting. But as part of that, the Dalit drum itself is kind of gaining popularity within those musical groups. Um, and so it's being kind of redeemed in a, in a new way, uh, even though um, as the caste system kind of shifted and changed, uh, it had um, kind of a role in that change. The Dalit drum is called the Thapu, um, which... 
to me sounds like one of those automatopoeia words. It's a it's a round circular drum. It's played with uh, two sticks. Um, one's usually made of bamboo, and one's made of, of another local wood. And um, that's that rhythm that you hear that 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 very sharp that very sharp rhythm, which is different from some of the other drums that we've heard in music so far, which has kind of more that mm-hmm sound to it, um, <laughs> if that came through. But thapu actually means mistake. Like That's what that word means. And uh, it, it went by another name called uh, the parai. And that is actually where we get the term pariah from. Uh, in French and also I think in, in or in English rather and I think also in French, so you you can just immediately <laughs> see how um, there's not a good connotation with these drums when it was named when it was first you know being made by the Dali community being created being played um, because of their role in in the society. Now so we take that and we put that up against this beautiful chant um, that we sang um, when we were in Vishtar in the in the worshiping community there and um, it was uh, a prayer you know a hymn that we learned in um, in uh, Hindi and it said lead us from unreal to real Lord lead us from darkness to light lead us from a taste of death and a fear of death to knowing immortality. And this is something that that they sing, that they chant, that they use um, alongside the drums and in some of their worship services that, that span a couple different kinds of faiths. It's just kind of a beautiful sentiment to have alongside a drum that is labeled a mistake because of who has played it. They kind of be playing and singing in defiance of that and in a request to powers greater than us, a request to God to continue to bring us from things that are unreal, which is, you know, you could, could be anything in your life, but to me it made me think, you know, the thing that's unreal is the prejudice we have, the, the way we see people, the differences we think that are among us, um, from darkness to light, you know, from, from not knowing to knowing, and from the fear of, of death to knowing immortality. I, I think that one's interesting because it's not necessarily just about life and death, but it's more about fear during your life and not having fear. Um, I think of some just delightful Christians that I've met in my past who have had that solid kind of faith and others too who have, who have just the solid faith that leads them into a knowledge that alleviates their fear during life. That's certainly something that we want to ascribe to and hope for. So we're heading up to Nepal soon, and I just, you know, I could make probably 50 episodes about all the different uh, little pieces that we've um, 
experience while we've been here in India. But I think we've had a good <laughs> overview of it, and I think I'll continue to process some of it while we're in Nepal. And um, I just wanted to leave uh, this episode. One of the other things that we experienced while we were at Vishtar is they had a big community jam. Uh, and they had um, people selling local crafts, and they had food, and they had tea, and they had um, barbecue going on. They were, you know, they were doing um, uh, chicken on, on spit roasts and things. Um, and uh, they had this, some music that was really, really incredible. Um, and I'll put the, the name of um, uh, the, the band that, that we were listening to, because it was a Grammy, Grammy winner in the, uh, in the description. But um, just t- take a listen with this. We'll, we'll finish with this. Take a listen and just you know, hold in your mind uh, the beautiful sounds that happen when we are blended together. The amazing peace that resonates in us, the amazing wholeness, the amazing shalom that is within us when we play music together, when we harmonize, when we let go of fear and prejudices and things that get in the way and we make beautiful music together. in every language is a raw recording podcast that is made as we travel so thank you for your patronage and patience as we go and now as we close this episode we are going to remind ourselves of the words of dr carson brisson who closed every class with a dear love and appreciation of our work as students may you be blessed to be a blessing And may peace, true peace and wholeness, find you wherever you are and wherever you call home. Shalom.